so the name uh, Charles Spurgeon is probably a name that, that you're familiar with, especially if you've been around Summit, if you've heard Zach Van Dyke, our Herndon campus pastor, uh, preach ever. You've probably heard a quote from Charles Spurgeon or at least uh, a thought of his, but he was a pastor uh, in, in the 1800s in London. He pastored a church uh, called um, the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, during the 1850s. And 1850s London was at the, 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 the center of the era of industrialization, the Industrial Revolution. And so London, like many cities in the U.S., uh, saw this trend of people moving from rural places and farms into the city, flooding into cities because there were opportunities there because of industrialization. And so there were jobs available uh, and people would come in. But the, but the rush of people in didn't correspond to any level of services that were available to people like, like education or, or social service, other social services. And so uh, though there were opportunities available, the, uh, the amount of, of vulnerable people of, of the poor, of orphans, of widows, of immigrants, uh, skyrocketed in cities in, in the 1850s, and in London in particular. And so churches uh, in this time had a decision to make, and so a trend, and you can track this historically, a trend as people flooded into cities, as populations grew in cities, the number of churches actually declined. Churches moved out of the cities. As people moved in, churches had a tendency to move out. And so Metropolitan Tabernacle, like other churches, had a decision to make. They had to ask what type of church they were going to be. Were they going to follow the trend? And as people moved into the city, they were going to move out of the city. Or were they going to be a church for the city? And they decided to stay right in the middle of the city, right in the middle of all the chaos to try to make a difference there, to try to move toward people uh, to meet people where they are, to help them know that they mattered to God. That was a decision they make. And so this, this church filled up every week with, uh, with people. And they heard powerful, I mean, Charles Spurgeon is a powerful preacher. So they heard these powerful messages and, and people were giving their lives over to, to Christ and, and transformation was happening in people's lives on a weekly basis. But also, they built over a dozen low-income housing developments for people in the city so that they could get on their feet as they were trying to find a job. They built 17 fully funded homes for the elderly. Now, this is before Social Security, so if you didn't have family, you had no one to care for you. And so these homes were places where the elderly and the ill could come and be loved to the very end. They built orphanages where they housed and clothed and fed and educated 400 orphans. They stayed in the city. They decided to be for the city. They saw the need, and they responded to it. Followers of Jesus, like you and me, they're the ones that did this. And they did this being for the city. And, and as they, they were for the city, they began to gain influence with uh, the poor population there. And then eventually the working class. And then eventually the upper class. And then eventually the British aristocracy. Slowly but surely, people uh, started to see the impact that that Metropolitan Tab Tabernacle was having, and they started to change their very city, the culture of London. So they weren't just impacting the city theologically or spiritually. They were also having this great influence economically, socially, emotionally for people. 
So what made Metropolitan Tabernacles so amazing and powerful wasn't just great teaching from Charles Spurgeon. It was that the church was in love with its city, and they changed the city as a result. Howard Snyder uh, wrote this great book. I highly encourage you to read it. It's a small little thing. It's called Kingdom, Church, and World. Uh, and in this book, he says, the Bible is a book about cities. It starts in a garden, yeah, but it ends in a city. Tim Keller, reflecting on the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and how people were made in the image of God and therefore have inherent value, said uh, brilliantly this, God loves cities more than he loves other places because there's more image of God per square inch in cities than there is anywhere else. God cares about our city, and he cares about the people in it. So today, as we look at how to make our city beautiful, I want to uh, ask a question. I want to quickly answer that question, and then I want to unpack the answer to that question. All right, so here's the question. How are we supposed to live as the church, as followers of Jesus, as mobile temples to God, endowed with the Holy Spirit and meant to reflect his character in the world. That's what we learned from Acts, that we are mobile temples endowed with the Spirit of God and meant to reflect his character. How are we supposed to live right where we are? And the answer to that is we're supposed to be seekers of peace. I want to turn to Jeremiah, uh, an Old Testament prophet, because I think it helps us understand this, we're supposed to live as seekers of peace. And this is in your bulletin. And what we're going to see in this little section of, of Scripture is that God encourages his people to, to be seekers of peace by seeking good for their city. All right? So we're supposed to be seekers of peace, but how we seek it is by being good for our city. And so Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, it's in your bulletin. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. I'm going to read it, and then we'll unpack it together. This is Jeremiah the prophet speaking for God to people. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So to understand what's going on here, uh, let me give a little context. Jeremiah is giving these words from God to God's people. And they'd previously lived in Jerusalem. This was God's promised land. This was the land that God promised to give his people so that they could, they could live out his character on earth, be a display people right uh, on the ground in their own city. And then there was a temple there that was the center of worship. And everything was set. Everything was good. And then about 600 B.C., the Babylonians, Babylon was the power of the day, came and decimated the city. They destroyed the temple, and they sent the people, God's people, into exile. So they were no longer in their place that had been promised them, no longer in this city that was dedicated to God. They couldn't worship in the place that they had dedicated to God. And so Jeremiah writes a letter to them as they're in this new place. They're in Babylon now. And he's referencing the, the reality that now you've been carried off. You have this new place. 
where you're kind of outsiders, things are different for you, and you have two options. Right? There's one option that while you're there, you can huddle up, you can close the doors, don't let outsiders in to protect your way of life and your worship and your culture. And honestly, that might sound like a good idea. It might sound like a God-honoring idea because they're now in, in a place that doesn't honor or respect their values or their God. So huddling up kind of seems like a good idea. See, Babylon, uh, the Babylonians, they had this sneaky way of uh, taking over a country and eliminating people groups. They were really good at it. That's why they became the world power of the day. So what they would do is they would invade a place, and they wouldn't wipe out all the people. They would just wipe out the military. And then everybody else, they would, they would uh, take to Babylon to have the, have the people be part of the culture, and, and they wouldn't marginalize them. They'd actually give them great places to live, great neighborhoods, great jobs, sometimes even high-ranking uh, government jobs. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. And the idea was that they would assimilate into the culture so that in a few years down the road, whatever was distinct about the people that were being conquered would just disappear. You'd just have Babylonians left. Everybody just becomes Babylonians. But Israel knew that they were supposed to be God's display people. They were supposed to be different on purpose. And so to fight, for, to fight off this, this assimilation, losing what's distinct about their culture, you could slam the doors shut. Let your people in, lock the world out. It would be a really effective uh, way to, to have self-preservation. And we might even wonder if that's the best option today. Like, we, like maybe that's, as followers of Jesus today, maybe that's what we should, should do. Maybe we should live that way. Maybe we should be separate from the world. Don't blend into Orlando. Don't let Orlando in. Right? Be different in how we live and act away from everybody else so that we don't assimilate. I mean, that's what we're doing here now, right? We came into a room. We closed the door. We're talking about our values and our God, right? No. It's actually not what we're doing here at all. It might sound effective or even right, but it is really hard to be a living reflection of God in the world if you're never with the world. There's another option. It's a more difficult option. It's the one that Jeremiah encourages the people to. He says, look, God's sending you to a place, and I know you didn't ask to go there. I know it's not your first choice. I know the values are different. I know the culture is different. I know the languages are different. I know everything is different. You're no longer in your own space. But you're going to have to now think of yourselves as mobile temples. The temple in Jerusalem, it's gone. You're the display now. You're the display of his goodness. That's why you would build a temple. By the way, you, you, it would be saying something about the God that the temple is dedicated to. Jeremiah is saying, now, you, now you're it. Now when people look at you, they're going to they're gonna decide something about who God is. So he doesn't say uh, uh, that you should separate yourself from the world around you. You should invest in the world around you. Don't separate from the world around you. Invest in the world around you. Hold firmly to your values and to your God. But remember, your God is a God who, who created all things and loves that which he created. And so every single person you come in contact with is someone that matters deeply to God. This should matter for us today, here, right now. We're called to be holy. We're called to be people that are distinctive and different, who, who live lovely and, and, and live loving 
yes, we're absolutely supposed to do that, but not at the exclusion of others for the sake of others. So God's placed Israel in this place that was not their ideal, not what they would have chosen. God sends them to a place where uh, they're around people they'd rather not be around. But Jeremiah says, you're still God's people there. Wherever you are, whatever condition you find yourself in, whoever you find yourself around, you're still God's people there. Act like it. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, says, seek the peace of the city. And it's a call to the church today as well. Peace is a word I grew up with. It was a really common word in my upbringing, but I also recognize I had a really weird upbringing. And so I don't know if that was a common word to you. Uh, My dad grew up in uh, the 60s in the hippie culture, and I'm pretty convinced he would have loved to have just stayed there uh, forever and ever, but he kind of drew that culture into his present day. And so that's what I grew up in. Woodstock was the soundtrack of my upbringing. And so we'd hear music of of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and, and The Who and The Beatles, Give Peace a Chance, The Doors. The Under, that wasn't a famous band. That was the band my dad was in. So that's pretty cool. Um, So that name's taken. Um, And still uh, to this day, uh, when I leave my dad's house, uh, he'll say I love you. uh, But he doesn't say goodbye. I don't think I've ever heard my dad say goodbye, which is a really interesting thing. He says peace. He still just says it. He says peace. And so I grew up with this sense that peace was something I was supposed to pursue for myself, like, like having peace, being peaceful, but also it was something I was supposed to take into the world and also pursue for the world. It's like, hey, as you're going, peace. Don't remember or don't forget peace, right? So I don't know if that was your upbringing or not, but I've always been very comfortable with this word peace. But when you look at the word peace biblically, it's so rich. It comes from a Hebrew word, shalom. Some of us have heard that word before. It's really broad. It's wonderfully broad uh, in its definition and its usage. It's used 350 times in the Old Testament. And I think we can sometimes think of peace, uh, define it with its antithesis. So it's like, okay, peace is the opposite of conflict or the opposite of war. So that's like if you don't have war and you don't have conflict, then you have peace. Or maybe we think of it as, as an internal thing, they have an inner peace. Maybe calm is, is maybe how we would define it. Peace of mind. I'm not worried about anything. Personal peace. But shalom is so much bigger than that. It's, 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 it's beautiful in its, in its breadth. One ancient Jewish writer uh, put, uh, defined shalom this way. It's when everyone is sitting under their own vine and under their own fig tree with no one to make them afraid. I love that definition. That has really stuck with me this week. Let me read it again. It's when everyone is sitting under their own vine and under their own fig tree with no one to make them afraid. Theologian uh, Neil Plantinga describes it as the webbing together of God and humans and creation in equity and fulfillment. I like that definition as well. Think of it this way. If I had uh, a thousand threads in my hand, and I, and I just threw them on the floor in front of me, uh, I wouldn't then say, see, look, it's a fabric. I would say, no, it's a thousand threads in proximity to each other. 
But if I took those threads and started to weave them together over, under, through each other, they would start to make a fabric. They'd be more beautiful and stronger together the more they were woven together. So God made the world to be beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed together, interdependent relationships with each other. That's how God created the world to be. That's shalom. And where that isn't the case, shalom can't exist. When the threads are out of place, when they're pulled, when they're ripped, when they're torn, when they're separate, shalom can't exist. And so there can't be a sense of like, well, I'm okay. I came in this morning. I'm feeling okay. Everything seems kind of imbalanced for me. And so there must be peace, right? There's peace. But if someone else isn't experiencing that, then biblically, peace isn't there, even if you feel okay. And if you read Jeremiah 29.7 with a sense of, of the original Hebrew, you actually get a feeling for this idea. Let me read it again and try and get the best sense of it we can. Seek the shalom of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it shaloms, you too will have shalom. If it shaloms, then you will have shalom. If they have peace, then you can have peace. And you may think, if you're kind of like tracking along here, or maybe even you experience it in your own day, yeah, but those are my enemies. Like they're different than me, they're not the same as me, they don't have the same culture as me, they don't have the same values as me, this city. They don't have the same things, they don't go after the same things, they don't believe the same things as me. Those are my enemies. God seems to be saying, I don't care. Pray for them. Yeah, but they're so different. They're not even going to be headed in the same ground. I don't care. They're your neighbors. Seek their will, their goodwill, their welfare. This is jaw-dropping stuff for a people that have been carried off into a foreign land who had it all together and now are in a place they didn't ask to be. It's as jaw-dropping as Jesus in Matthew 5 saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But it's clear. God's making it crystal clear we are connected to our city and the people that make it up. God has placed us at this time and this place in history to be seekers of peace. This is where we are. And so to seek peace, to live as we're supposed to, it comes with this built-in question that should be kind of repeating in our minds over and over and over again. Who doesn't feel whole or safe or sound? And any name on that list becomes someone that we should care about if we're serious about peace. Because if others are whole and safe and sound, then and only then can we be as God's people. If others shalom, then we can shalom. So bringing peace can't happen if we huddle up, if we close the doors, lock the doors, keep the, keep the others out and only gather uh, those that, that kind of look and feel and, same, uh, and say the same things. But it also can't happen if people are going neglected and uncared for and left out. So we could create a society where there's prosperity for some. Like some people are like, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's good for us, and there's opportunity for us, and that's a really good thing. But if vulnerable people stay unseen and unheard and uncared for, 
peace can't exist. So if the child doesn't have peace, we can't have peace. If the poor don't have peace, we can't have peace. If the homeless family doesn't have peace, we can't have peace. There are 26,000 children in our region that live on less than $2 a day. That's defined as extreme poverty. One in four children live in families that earn less than $26,000 a year. 49% of people in our state are described as financially insecure. Orlando ranks dead last in major cities in median income. What that means is people can work really hard, sometimes two and three jobs, and not make enough to support their family. That is not shalom. And if God is right, and he is, it means we can't be at peace with this. Jesus said in John 14, he, he said, um, believe in me. Believe that I am the Savior. And then he said, it's so interesting, or at least believe by the evidence of what I have done. Essentially, he says, uh, believe at least in what you've seen in the fabric being knit back together that I'm the Savior. And then he goes on. The very next thing is he says, what, uh, whoever believes in me will do as I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Guys, call me an idealist. Call me a romantic. Call me whatever. I think he meant it. I think he meant for us to find increasingly creative ways to bring hope and healing into the world by how we care for people, and when we do, it produces peace. Twelve years ago uh, is when we moved from Indiana uh, to, to here, and, um, uh, and everything we knew was in Indiana. Our family, our friends, we went to school there. Uh, Abby and I had, had worked there. Like, all we knew was Indiana, so moving down here, we knew we were going to have to find community faster. We just weren't going to make it. Like, we were, if we didn't get connected with people, we weren't going to make it. And we thank the Lord we found Summit, and, and we've been here ever since. But a few weeks after coming here, we did this thing called NiceServe. And we didn't have any context for it, so if you're new and you're like, what is this whole NiceServe thing? That's how we felt 12 years ago. And uh, we were excited by it, like, oh, they go out and serve, that's cool. And so we signed up for projects and we got a t-shirt, green t-shirt, and then we were like on the team. Like, we got a, we got a team jersey. Uh, we were excited about that. They let us on the team. And so we showed up Saturday morning, and everybody had the same green shirt on. And we were like, yeah, this is great. And, and we went out and served. And we went to Apopka to pick corn from a field that was going to be tilled under the next day. And we picked the corn, and it was uh, distributed to uh, hungry families. It was a really cool project. And, uh, but I remember, if, if you've ever walked through cornfields, uh, corn's not... It looks good in pictures, but it's really sh it'll cut you up. And so I had Eden on, I had Eden on my shoulders because I didn't want her to get all cut up. And Caleb was like below the stalks, and so he was safe. And and we were just picking. Uh, and and I just remember looking around and seeing all these people in green shirts, thinking I, I'm so thankful I'm on a team. Like we have a community. But more than that, I remember thinking these people could be anywhere right now, and they're spending their time doing that. Like what we're doing is good, is valuable. And the fact that we're doing it together is good and valuable. I remember thinking um, to belong to something like this was, was so surprising and, and worthwhile. At our last NYSERV, um, this campus, we do, we do them at all of our campuses, you know, all across the summit. But at this campus, in one Saturday morning, we gave 1,000 hours of service to our community. 
since we started NiceServe, we've given 100,000 hours of service to our community. That's significant. And so uh, if there's any hesitation, like jump in and be a part of NiceServe with us. It is a great first step in, in, in serving in our community, and it matters. And it might bring peace to somebody. And that somebody might be you. Yet NiceServe was never meant to be the end. It was always meant to be the means. NiceServe was always the means. It was never the end. It was always meant to be the, the way that we form relationships and the way that, that we build excitement toward showing proof that if we're seekers of peace, it might actually matter. It was always a, a means. And so we'll continue from NiceServe. Yes, jump in, do NiceServe, please. But, but we're going to continue on from there. Our strategy to serve locally is ongoing in nature. And it's going to focus on vulnerable children. That's what we're going to be about over the next expended, extended period of time. And, and specifically focusing on uh, caring for uh, children and families in foster, the foster system, and uh, local schools. And that's, that's important to us. Because in any community, in any city that you find yourself in, uh, the, the meekest voice can easily be overlooked, can be overheard. When, when everybody's vying for so much attention, and children always have the meekest voice. And so every child, if they're not cared for, if that voice isn't heard and they're not cared for, will, will have a challenge being able to live to grow. And it'll certainly be almost impossible for them to grow to the point of thriving. It's logical in a sense, right? With children, we know when a baby is born, they're completely dependent. If they're not given, in some ways, generosity and, and love from other people, then, then they won't make it. They need the care of others, and children continue to be vulnerable. Every children is at risk of being that smallest voice. And so you add to that structures and systems that are sometimes broken. Uh, you add to that potentially difficult home situations or unstable family dynamics, and those vulnerabilities only grow. So every child is, is vulnerable. But those vulnerabilities reduce proportional to how much they're cared for by others. And so we can't stop at nice serve. We've got to continue in an ongoing way. We'll continue to serve vulnerable children in an ongoing way. Let me talk a little bit about how we're doing that with schools. We're dipping our toe into relationship with East River High School. And we're taking a learning and a listening posture in forming relationships. We've, we've had some inroads in being able to, to care for that community well. Uh, at the end of last school year, we got a call because we'd started to build a little bit of trust. They said, hey, it's Teacher Appreciation Week. And uh, maybe other schools have like PTAs and stuff to, to do teacher appreciation. It's teacher appreciation week. We don't have anything. And so we, Summit, were able to, to do a teacher appreciation for East River High School. It was amazing. After that, a, a student uh, and family, they lost their home to a fire. And they called us up. And they're like, hey, is there anything you can do to help? And, and you guys stepped up and, and provided uh, some clothing and some, uh, some gift cards for the family. We were invited into that space. We have been able to um, uh, help the baseball team get their field ready for the season. These are all creating pathways. None of those are the end point. Those are all creating pathways for ongoing relationship. And just in case you're wondering, like, okay, why East River High School? Because there are other high schools. Like, why is that one so important? Bithlow, a community not far from here, uh, about 15 minutes away, feeds into East River High School. In Bithlow, there's disproportionately low income, disproportionate high illiteracy and unemployment. 
And there are actually, uh, and this has been tracked by people that make these designations, uh, the, the drinking water is toxic because chemicals have seeped in to the water, so it's unsafe uh, to drink for many people. Up until recently, there was no permanent doctor's office and no access to public transit in Bithlow at all. And so this, uh, the, the things that might create access for people to move out of situations of poverty and illiteracy and underemployment actually weren't available to people in Bithlow. That's why we're there, because we have access to caring for, for children and their families in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. And schools keep telling us over and over again uh, as we engage in this, just show up consistently. We, we have a lot of people that show up, and then they feel good, and then they head out. So just show up consistently. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do our very best to be consistent in the, in, in the relationship. If someone is anything, we're loyal in relationships. And so, uh, so we're going to continue to partner as deeply as we can over time uh, there. So there's some projects for NYSERV that we can jump into, and there'll be opportunities to continue to dive in. Also in caring for foster children and, and their families, uh, we've created care communities around foster families with, with roles from everything from like mentoring to childcare to uh, taking a meal once a month. And so uh, I'm going to be talking about this care community thing. We've been talking about this care community thing. But if you're like, man, I would love to do that. That's a cool thing. But I don't have the time for it. Um, you probably have a friend who maybe had a bad week. And you're like, hey, can I bring you a meal? It'd be the same thing with joining one of these care teams, if you could do that. That's the level, that's the kind of lowest level of engagement. So don't self-select out just because you don't think you have time. Uh, be open and available to that. But we currently have uh, four care communities at this campus um, that, that, are, that are serving foster families and, and giving support to them. Um, and and we're, we're changing cycles. We're changing statistics as we do that. Statistics tell us that 50% of foster families, after going through a year or so of training, actually quit fostering after one placement because it's so hard. It's so isolating. But if you put a care community around foster families, 90% continue after that first placement. You completely flip the statistic. And so this has a real impact for those four families. Across Summit, there are 27 care communities. If you're wondering, like, okay, well, what's the scale of all of this? There are around 250 foster families in Orlando as a whole. So in six months, we've been able to put care teams that flip the statistic on success for 10% of all foster families. This is a real impact, and we've just gotten started. And so if you're wondering if it matters, it does. The statistics tell us. But maybe that doesn't, you know, maybe that's not for you. Maybe you're like, well, yeah, that's just stats and numbers, and you've been doing stats and numbers for the last 10 minutes. Does this actually matter for people? It does. It actually matters for actual people, and I can prove it. Watch this. I'm Bill Sefton, and this is my wife, Patricia, and we're getting ready to foster. We've been told we're a little unconventional as empty nesters to, to take this on. A lot of folks who do foster care already have children and are sort of working the foster kids into the mix. and. I mean, from our standpoint, we feel like it's the perfect time to do it. Um, it just feels like we shouldn't necessarily look at this as a time of comfort. We should look at this as a time of an opportunity to, to do something. You know, calling all empty nesters. It's time to, <laughs> time to start filling these needs. 
We started this journey just stepping out on faith, knowing that that's what God was calling us to, but knowing no one. And then we got connected with a training class that's the first step for getting into foster care. And it just happened to be going on at Summit. And not coincidentally, obviously, while we were taking that class is when Summit was really starting to both from a leadership standpoint and from a rollout standpoint, talk about this is what we're gonna be focusing on. So it just, you know, the timing was, it's not something we could have written for sure. It's been amazing to watch God answer prayers and to unveil his will little by little. And it has been a tremendous boost in my faith over the past few weeks to see God say time and time again, I'm not asking you to start anything. I'm asking you to join me where I am already working. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's one of those things that just increases trust. I mean, she's a planner and I'm a worrier. And so, it, you know, it's nice to know that God has sort of laid all these things out in, in a way that allow both of us to step back and say, okay. We were a week away from our final inspection, and our inspections took place over the months of November and December. And so we created a registry, and it just wasn't getting any traction at all. And so I started to become very afraid, and I reached out to the staff. I just sent an email um, to Dan, and I said, I know you want to be helping with foster care. We're stuck. I was fearful, but I went and opened up our registry and I just sat and cried. Here are these people, people that we don't even know, they're so eager to do the work of God. They're so eager to help. And we're not alone as we move forward in the journey. It's going to look different along the way, um, but God will constantly provide those people to meet that need. that there was a newborn and asked if we were willing to take him. And so we said yes. And about six hours later, a stranger shows up on the doorstep with this itty bitty little baby. Just like that, we became foster parents. You know, he's one of those babies that just seems to be content and happy kind of wherever he is and whatever's going on. He's. He's really a super temperament. He loves people <laughs> um, and he loves being in a church. And we've known from the beginning that God has kind of called us to share him. I mean, our care community is a group of couples that um, some have young kids, some don't. Uh, they're kind of a wide range of folks. Um, and now we call them friends and they have 
you know, jumped in completely with us in this process. And I don't know, I really don't know what we'd have done without, without their help, for sure. Part of God's plan for our story was this group that has come to mean more to us than they can ever imagine. I greatly appreciate their tenderness and their compassion. Um, foster care is an emotional journey. To have people that are willing to share and that with us um, has been tremendously life-giving. One of the most unexpected things for me in having a care group around us has been how well the people in our community have loved on him even knowing that he would not be around for very long, um, that he would be returned to his family. And we're confident that he is in God's hands and we know it's the right thing. This is really a, a fantastic way for the people who are at Summit to show their hearts to the world. And I think that this is one that someone in particular has the right mix of people and talent and resources to really make a huge difference. First and foremost, of course, we want him to know that, that he's loved and that following after God is the greatest way to make sure that you know that no matter what your circumstances are in your life. And, We've given him that start here, and the church has been just amazing at jumping in with us on that. Our hope is that, that he's got a calling from the earliest days of his life to follow after God. That's really our biggest hope. If you have tissues, you just pass them. Just pass them around and everybody will have some. If they have peace, then we can have peace. I, I don't know. I don't know if anybody in the room is called to be a foster parent. I don't know. Um, if you think you should walk toward it, that would be my encouragement. Um, but if even one hair stood up on your arm as you watched that, um, I would love for you to consider being a part of a care community. And there are a couple of steps coming up for us for you to, to kind of walk toward that. On November 10th, which is a Sunday coming up, we're going to have a lunch after this service. It'll just be an info session. It's just a chance for you to learn more about the foster system in general and care community specifically. Um, it's non-committal. Just show up and, and we'll have food and child care and all that stuff for you to just learn more. And then the very next week on the 17th, we'll do an actual care team orientation if you want to walk into one of those teams and we'll get you uh, ready for that opportunity. Um, like I said, if you, if you felt anything there, something in the back of your mind that was like, I don't know, maybe I should be open to it, you should. And you should come on the 10th. We're stepping into relationships that will help us impact children's lives and bring hope to places that need it and, and change cycles that need to be broken. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to it. 
Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Peace can't come even for us if there are people in our city that are going unnoticed and uncared for because God has called us to this time and this place in history to reflect his character, not by closing doors, but by opening as many as we possibly can. So let's live as seekers of peace. Let's knit things back together. Let's be living, breathing, serving examples of God's character in this world. He's called us to this city. We should love it. And as we do, as we pursue this, as we walk toward these opportunities, as we care for the vulnerable, as we notice them and give them voice and give them care, we have to remember that we can't go in Jesus' name without him. We can't follow Jesus without Jesus. We can't serve like Jesus without Jesus. And so let's pray to him for the power to do what we're called to do. God, thank you for your scripture, your word that reminds us with great clarity that you haven't called us to extract ourselves from the world around us, from the city that you have placed us in. No, you've invited us to take steps into the city that you have called us to and the places you have called us to. Thank you for the crystal clarity you give us that every single person we come in contact with matters to you. And so they should matter to people that claim your name. And so I pray that we would be people as we continue to pursue relationships, as we continue to seek ways to effectively care for the most vulnerable, that we wouldn't grow weary. And we know under our own power we will, God. Something else will vie for our attention and capture our hearts. So God, I pray that you would empower us to stay focused, to give us clarity on the impact that caring for the vulnerable can have. Give us consistent reminders that our peace is tethered to the peace of others, even those that are different than us, even those that look and talk and act different than us. Our peace is tethered to theirs. Help us be a people that knit things back together in your name and only with your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing one more song to close out our service here. So if you would, let's stand up. And i got to tell you, the first service this morning had a hard time with this. But I believe that this row knows how to clap, okay? <laughs>